0: Amen. Merry Christmas Eve. I'm glad you're here. It's good to be with you. And if you're online, we're glad that you're able to join us in that in that way as well. Um, some of you I haven't seen since uh, March and uh, face-to-face. You've seen me. I've, I've fibbed to people and told them that the camera that we use for the online services works both ways. And uh, people start buying new pajamas and things like that. I don't know what that's about, but... Um, but the truth is, I really miss you, and it's really good to put eyes on a few of you. And more than that, I want to catch up and I want to find out how you're doing and what's been going on and how you feel and what your life has been like over the last many months. How about Garrett Botine memorizing all of that while his parents looked at notes? <laughs> Well done, Garrett. Well done, sir. And if you want to see more Garrett, uh, Garrett's actually uh, been going through some really neat things, spiritually speaking, and he's going to get uh, baptized this Sunday. So you can come back for church and, and witness that. And, and uh, Garrett, we, that's really excellent. And Evan, great job. And the rest of you did. I got both teams, the whole crew of you did a great job. And the crew leading us in worship did wonderful as well. And I'm grateful. Um, we had decided early on in the month to just do our Christmas Eve services online. And then cases began to drop, and um, some things opened up regarding church life, and um, some people just let us know, oh, we just would love to gather. And so uh, this whole team, our staff, and many, many volunteers between now and then this past Sunday pulled everything together to get this done a few times for you today on Christmas Eve. And so you can thank some people on the way out if you want, but we're really grateful for them. Yeah. So, I hope you're ready for Christmas. It's coming whether you are or not. Uh, maybe you have some shopping to do. Outlets are open tonight, right? So, you have some things to get done or maybe some things to pick up. We're about ready. Things are wrapped. The food is in the fridge. The, the steaks are, are wrapped in bacon. And there's some other things defrosting and all kinds of things. We're ready. It's different, though, isn't it? Even if you have some family around you, maybe you don't have all the family that you wish. Even if you have some plans, you don't have all the plans that you are used to having, it's a little bit different. Do you remember where you were last Christmas? Do you remember where you were? Let's just get specific. See if in your imagination you can go back. Do you remember where you were last Christmas Eve and what you were doing? Who you were with? Whose home you were in? Who was there? And what you did? A full year ago. I know it feels like a decade, doesn't it? See if you can remember exactly. About this time last year on Christmas Eve, well, a bunch of us were here in this room. We had about 400 people crammed into this space and the lobby and up the stairs. And then the next service we had about 50, so we had them lopsided. But it was here, this is where we were. Where were you? What were you doing? And what was Christmas Day like? And what were your plans? And where were you going and who were you with? A lot has happened in a year, hasn't it? A lot has changed. My guess is your perspectives have changed. My guess is that many of your thoughts about life and what matters and maybe even who matters and who you want to journey with, maybe those things have changed. Some of your priorities have changed, maybe your values, maybe some of your anxieties and fears have taken over. But if you've been with us over the last month as a church, or maybe you've watched online, then you know that we've been digging hard on this idea of hope because we believe that hope is absolutely essential if you're going to make it. If you're going to make it, you got to have hope. And that hope isn't some wispy idea. We've been trying to define it and use Scripture to give us guideposts to help us down the path. And so I wonder if you could transport yourself back to last Christmas just for a moment in your imagination. And if you could, if there was a a present left under your tree, maybe a pretty big one, you know, yay big, one of those things that you look at and you really wonder what's behind the wrapping. And maybe it would be the last thing that you would unwrap and as it sits there if you knew deep down within your heart if I want I can go open it. But if I do open it there are some things in there that maybe I might not consider a gift at first. What if when I open it what I'm going to have to deal with or face or come to terms with are things about hope and life. What what if there's some things in that box that are going to come upon me in the year 2020 that I may not choose or pick if given the choice? What if I'm going to have to face some financial difficulties or some strained relationships? What if I'm going to have to face uncertainty when it comes to, you fill in the blank, whatever was the toughest thing for you this year? Would you have opened it or would you have left it? In other words... The shifts and the changes that you've gone through over the last 12 months, are they things that you yet can say that you are grateful for? That you could give thanks for? That even though you've been through maybe the valley of the shadow of death or times of uncertainty or anger or anxiety, whatever it is that is kind of your go-to emotion when things aren't going the way that you intended or hoped or planned, can you still cling to who God is and what he's doing? Would you open that gift? If you could go back 12 months today, or would you take a different path? We said early in the series that we're in that wraps up tonight that hope requires relentless and gritty and intentional work. I think we have this impression that hope is something that we just have when life is going well or when we can predict or when we feel good about who we are or what might happen tomorrow. I think we believe mistakenly that hope is the kind of thing that only exists for people whose lives are turning out as they had hoped and planned but we learn through all the literature, through all the examples, through all the stories of history that hope matters most when you find yourself in a concentration camp or unemployed or in a loveless marriage or uncertain about your health. That's when hope gives you oxygen to breathe and a path to survive. That's when it matters the most. That's what hope is. And over the last 12 months, especially the last 10 months, I've come to believe that hope isn't real unless it's been through a grinder. You know what I mean? That that hope is just a, it is a flimsy emotion unless it's been put through some sort of test. And it makes me think of the grinder that my mom and dad would use the day after Thanksgiving to make turkey salad. Have you ever seen one of those? sits on a counter and just has a crank, and you put in whole turkey. It looks good and juicy. When it comes out the other end, it just looks gross and nasty. They make turkey salad out of it. They love it. I can't stand it. But they, this is what they do. They crank it, and it comes through this grinder, and it's something different on the other side. I think that's what hope is. I think hope is this thing that when it comes through a grinder, it's been tested, and it's been burned, and what's left is the gold, and it's the good stuff, and it's real. And so I wonder about your hope. And I wonder about the journey you have been on and the grinder you have been put through. And if you're coming out on the other side with a bit of realization that God is here, he is with you, Emmanuel, he will not leave. And he will give you the hope that you need to survive. And I can think of no better story than the Christmas story to teach us about that hope, which is why we've been through it the whole month of December, centered around this candle of hope. Now when we get to this moment in the story, when things begin to pick up steam, to pick up some velocity, this is what happens. When Luke tells it, he says this. So Joseph, he went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. He's not going up like we think of in north, but he is going up in elevation because the road is a tough road and it does go up and up and up to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. This was the prophecy that the prophet Micah had given hundreds of years before, that the Messiah would be born in the town of David, the town of Bethlehem, because he would belong to the line of David. And so Micah prophesies about this little town named Bethlehem, and he talks about how glory would come from it and how beautiful it would be But it's interesting, Joseph, Mary, neither of them are from Bethlehem. But because of history, there is now a census. Because Rome wants to tax, there's a reason to be traveling. And so Joseph begins to make a journey. Now the journey he makes is different than the journeys that you and I make these days. The journey that Joseph will make is gritty, it's intentional, and it requires hard work. It's just like the hope that you and I have. This gritty, intentional journey is that way because, well, first of all, it's about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And when you go down the path to make your way to Bethlehem, you're going to follow the the flat area near the Jordan River for a long period of time, and then you're going to begin to climb some hills west over into the town of Bethlehem. The flat area sounds like it might not be too bad, but it's a little bit treacherous It's because it's near the River Jordan. It's a forest, and you know what's in the forest. If you've read any fairy tales, all of the animals, lions and tigers and bears, right, they're all there because they can have cover, and they can hide, and they can forage, and they can eat, and they can kill each other, and this is where they're traveling There's animals of the human kind as well. Bandits were famous for living along this path because they would take what they wanted and take their plunder and move on. The journey was 90 miles. On a good day in antiquity, somebody might travel 20 miles if they were alone or if they were in a hurry or if they didn't have a big pack. But Joseph wasn't alone, Mary did have a big pack. And so their journey, maybe, at best, on any given day, would be about 10 miles at the most. Luke says that Joseph went, and he went there to register for tax purposes with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and she was expecting a child. So if you've done the math and you've figured out, this is about a nine-day journey for Joseph and Mary. And it's across treacherous land. In the winter, we don't know when they traveled, really what time of year, but if it were winter or even early spring, it would have gotten freezing at night, maybe up to about 30 in the day. Even if it was in the spring and not the cold of the winter, they would have had the winter rains or maybe the heat of the summer. It's a bit like Colorado, you know, the weather's beautiful until it's not. And then when it's not, they had to travel and move. And they didn't have the shelter that you and I have when we move about inside our car. Donna and I took all kinds of journeys over the summer. In our little COVID camper, we went all kinds of places. And when we did, I had air conditioning or heat. I had XM radio and I had all the snacks I wanted in the company of my beautiful wife. They walked in sandals, fabric shoes, in the elements, 10 miles a day, nine days straight, Until they made it to Bethlehem. It's a journey. I mean, at some point, Joseph had to think, come on, Lord, couldn't you have picked somebody that at least lived in Bethlehem? I mean, why'd you have to make it this hard? I mean, surely there's lots of good men that live in David, that live in this town that wouldn't have had to make this journey. Why me? Why now? Why this journey? Because of a census and Mary's with me. What's your year been like? What kind of journey have you been on? How many times did you think, why me? Why now? Why this? Why do we have to deal with this? Online school, no school, working from home. We thought it would be great to hang out together for the first five days, and now we can't stand each other. You talk about 2020 In 10 years, and you will remember some of the good things and some of the hard things, but you'll remember the growth that occurred in your life because of the journey that you were on. It seems every bit of history I've read this year, every book I've read, fiction or nonfiction, I've been paying attention to the difficulty and the pain that people experience when they're on a journey. And that's what we're on right now. And we're not quite sure where it's leading or when it's going to change, or when it's going to get better, or when it's going to end. But this is the journey that we're on. I love poetry, and I love Christmas poetry. One of my favorites was written back in the 1800s by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It's called Christmas Bells. It became the, the popular song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And before it became that song, he just penned the words as a poem And it begins with that famous phrase, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. And then toward the end, he writes this stanza, which is not very Christmassy, to be honest. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. I've referenced it before at Christmas here in church. Henry was depressed when he wrote it when he wrote it, he was deeply depressed. He wrote it in 1863, not that far from Christmas Day. In 1861, his wife passed. His wife, he would probably call the love of his life. Uh, Her name was Fanny, and they had six kids together. They'd been married 18 years when she died. Some of the kids were off. Most were off. They had still a couple at home, but She was busy on that day, one summer, 1861, putting locks of the kid's hair in envelopes for memory and folding them over and dripping hot wax onto the envelopes. Somehow the wax from the candle came in contact with her dress and it caught on fire. The next day she died from her injuries from that burn. And some would say that Longfellow never really recovered from her death. He was deeply, deeply sad about it. And for years and years, struggled with depression. The journey that he was on was tough and gritty. And he had to do what he had to do to hang on to hope. And these were the feelings he had of despair and no peace. And even this year, you've seen that hate is strong, isn't it? You've seen it many times. In fact, he was so grieved over his wife that a few years after he wrote this, he would write these lyrics in this poem. There is a mountain in the distant west that sun defying in its deep ravines displays a cross of snow upon its side. Such is the cross I wear upon my breast. It would be, in fact, about 18 years after Fanny died that he would write this about grieving still her death. What a journey he was on. What a journey you've been on. What a journey Joseph and Mary were on. And when I read these words of of Longfellow, it catches my attention because I know about a mountain out here in the West that is very much like this. Maybe you've heard of this mountain. Maybe you even climbed this mountain. You know the name of it? That's right. It's the Mount of the Holy Cross. Back in the 1800s, there was a, some folklore about this mountain out here in what was known at that time as the Colorado Territory. It wasn't even a state yet. And in the Colorado Territory, there were some trappers and some Native Americans that had seen a mountain. And this mountain, they said, had certain times of the year, middle to late summer, this white imprint of a cross on the side of it. And lore began to expand and people... Hadn't seen it, but they had heard about it. Around 1870 or so, there were four explorers that were sent out west to map and to chart and to lay down the coordinates of the uncharted American West. And one of the men that was a part of that journey, well, he took a picture of it. And this was the very first picture of the Mount of the Holy Cross. And you can see it there. Usually it takes to somewhere around June, July, or August that this cross appears, but you can see it's in the ravines of the mountain, and once the snow-capped mountain begins to melt, what's left is this sign of the cross. This is the image that Longfellow had seen. It's the first picture taken of the Mount of the Holy Cross. It was taken by William Henry Jackson, famous photographer. In fact, this this picture is the most famous picture that he's ever taken throughout his career. And Longfellow saw this picture, and the image of the cross made him think about the suffering of his own life and the suffering of Jesus, and it made him find a kinship with Jesus. Jesus. And he felt like, well, we're brothers in this. This is who we are. And this is how we'll walk together. So when William Henry Jackson went to take this picture, he didn't have an iPhone. He had an Eastman, number two. It's a camera that's bigger than this table. And it weighs many pounds. And to even get anywhere near this mountain, he had to use a mule that would carry this camera, his tripod, and the stand. And then, of course, the other stand that would hold the front of the camera for him, many, many pounds. Every picture was taken on a plate of glass and it was stored with fabric and fabric and then was then loaded onto that mule again. In fact, the idea of even getting where near this mountain, I mean, he didn't travel the roads that you and I traveled. There weren't paths, there, there weren't signs, there weren't markers that said Mount of the Holy Cross. It didn't even have the name at that time but he made it over to the Sawatch Mountain Range with this expedition charting the west. Come on, you talk about a journey. It's very much like your year, right? Up and down, twists and turns, unexpected. I mean, not very many people had even been there. To get this picture, he had to go to the top of Notch Mountain which is about a mile and a half this way of Mount of Holy Cross, south of Vale, Sawatch so Mountain Range. Anyway, here's a little trivia that most people don't know. You may have not even seen this picture, but this wasn't even the first picture that he took of this mountain. He had taken one. In fact, he had dozens of pictures that were loaded in glass on the back of this mule that was walking around mountain passes, and along with his assistants, all of them helping carry all of his gear. And the mule lost his footing and broke somewhere in the neighborhood of a few dozen pictures. And so they had to go back up that same path to the top of Notch Mountain, which in itself is a 13er, to get this picture. It's the best view of the Mount of the Holy Cross that you can get in the mountain range. And he took this picture Everywhere I turned this year, I read stories of hard journeys. It made me think about you and what you're facing and how hard it is to raise kids in the middle of a pandemic, when school is uncertain, when your job, finances, when even your future is uncertain. But I'm reminded of the people in history like Longfellow and Jackson that took journey after journey that was hard. And so when he writes this passage in this poem, the snow cross, there is a mountain in the distant west, sun-defying, and its deep ravines displays a cross of snow. It reminds me that you and I, we bear a cross as well. And it's the image of the cross that's stuck in his mind, and it reminds me that the journey that we're on is not that different than the journeys of the people that have come before us. And then... He began to confess that he felt despair and no peace. Longfellow, he was no stranger to grief. When Fanny, his his wife, passed, well, she was his second wife. His first wife, they only married a few years. His first wife was pregnant and lost the baby through miscarriage and eventually died because of that incident. Longfellow courted Fanny. For seven years before she even said yes to a possibility of a relationship. And then she finally did. And as I said, they had six kids together. The grief he felt was so deep and so strong that on Christmas Day, when he heard the bells, these were the feelings he felt. And it wasn't just because of his wife's passing. As I said, the poem was written in the middle of the Civil War, 1963. About a year before, Longfellow's son enlisted in the war. He didn't want him to go, but he went anyway. And then he had gotten word that his son had been injured gravely, he thought, maybe mortally. His son came home, was being nursed back to health. And just a few days before Christmas in 1863, he got word that his son would likely recover. It would take a while, but he would likely recover. And then he woke up on Christmas Day and wrote this poem and ended it with this last statement. Then peeled the bells more loud and deep, and he says this, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. The Journey Longfellow or Jackson or... Phil or Josh or any of you took over the last year is not that different than the journeys of these men, and it's not that different than the journeys of Mary and Joseph as they left Nazareth and made their way to Bethlehem. It's fraught with peril, difficulty, ups and downs, over hills, down through valleys, fear of danger, difficulty, discouragement, and hope being sapped away as you deal with the day in, day out, mundane details of life. Nine days on the road, Mary and Joseph finally make it to Bethlehem. And here's what Luke says While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. When Luke writes this, he's gonna finish his entire gospel. He's done all the research the church has started. Luke has seen everything take place that you and I know take place in the life of Jesus. But with these understated words that fit an understated king, Luke is able to convey to us the incredible moment when God in history steps into time like he has not done at any other moment And Luke simply says, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. It's a beautiful set of verses, but I prefer the King James. Here's what it says. And so it was, that while they were there, say it with me, the days were, it's a great phrase, isn't it? It's very difficult to translate into Greek. In fact, the Greek doesn't have the word time in it. The days were accomplished. And then what is said next in the Greek, I think is best translated in this, that she should be what? In fact, Mary is delivered. I mean, make no mistake, Mary does the heavy lifting here, right? She has the nine-month evidence of pregnancy right in front of her, and she has a baby that night in Bethlehem. She delivers Jesus physically, viscerally, in all the ways that a baby is born. But of course, Mary and Joseph, and me, and you, we are delivered because of his birth. This is what it means when Luke says, the days were accomplished. I'm grateful for a season at the end of 2020 where we can slow down and take a breath. I'm grateful that we could spend some time together, face-to-face, some of us, and online, dispersed as a family knowing that a time is coming when we'll all gather again together. My hope is that you will take stock on the journey that you've been, where you've come from, what you've experienced, where your doubts have risen up and where your anxieties have taken over, and where your trust has waned and what you did to build it back again. You're on the precipice, the crossroads of a new year. It's a perfect time for you to look back, consider, and reflect And prepare to move forward into a new year. But as you do, may you walk with this truth deeply embedded in your heart and in your mind. Christmas is the reminder that God has not forgotten you. He knows your name and he walks with you. And he knows your journey is hard. He has authored every hard journey that has happened since the beginning of time. And somehow through those hard journeys we find despair... And fear. And through that despair and fear, anxiety and anger, our hope comes out on the other side as if through a grinder and it is made new. And so our hope is not in anything temporary, our hope is in God and God alone. When John begins to write his gospel story, it's a little bit different, but he includes these words. In him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's say that sentence together. Say it with me. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Can you think of a more important time in our history... Even the history of your parents, maybe even grandparents, when the power of light is more essential, the darkness in the world, it waits, and will always be here. But the darkness is there. Jesus steps in as light, and the darkness has not overcome it. It shines as bright as can be. So I'm going to pray, and in just a moment we'll sing just a little bit more. And as we do that, there will be some candles that are lit in a few places in the room. If you'd like to light your candle socially distanced, might be just the year for that, then you can make your way to one of those tables and light that candle as we get ready to sing. If you'd like to, you can uh, receive your light or give your light to someone else nearby. And that... Will give you a chance to give and receive the way God's love gives and receives. But we recognize this that this light does not come from us, doesn't come from within, it only comes from the place that is the originator of light. When the creation story is told in Genesis, the scriptures say, and God said, Let there be light, and there was. And so, Lord, right now we come as your people knowing that the world can be a very dark place. And Lord, we have been eyewitnesses to this kind of darkness this year, whether it's been division and hatred, disease and fear, anxiety and anger, injustice of all manner. Lord, we are not naive in any way but we see the power of the light and we're reminded of it this Christmas. So just like when Longfellow woke up on Christmas Day and heard the bells, we are reminded by these lyrics and by the light that we hold that you shine your light within us and you give us us the opportunity to shine that light to places where darkness could overcome it. Because you're with us, we experience hope, a new hope. And so, Lord, as the light spreads throughout this place, we're reminded of two things, that we're more powerful together than we are apart, and that there are some of us dispersed in our homes and are lighting their candles in living rooms right now, and we ask that you would Keep all of us safe as we begin this new year. Help us to seek you with all that we are, with all that we have. Lord, we ask this on the silent night.